right. Ugh, that just took me too long, and everyone got to listen to me do it. How fun is this? <laughs> Very um, fun. Yes. Uh, but uh, I will. I will kick us off, and we'll go ahead and uh, get some fun going here, which is great. And I will say thank you and welcome to the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti Oedipus. Uh, we are moving into 4.2, the molecular unconscious today. Uh, however, for today, we are moving into the molecular unconscious. We've just recently spent time uh, going through the nature of... Oh God, where do we even start with the last chapter, uh, the last section? Is it Jack? Do you want to, anyone want to give a summary on it, perhaps? Yeah, I'd say... So one of the easy things we can do to, to sum up 3.1 is we can say they're, they're expanding um, three main points about how they're criticizing psychoanalysis in terms of the three syntheses and then right that kind of culminates in the two diagrams right the difference between a universal clinical theory as the the pendulum versus like kind of the straight flow of desire and the, the question of the breakthrough or the breakdown which is going to carry us the rest of the way into this chapter is that point about breaking through the uh, bwl or breaking down and bouncing back on the soci everybody loves the diagrams <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. hate all their diagrams sorry I, I like the concept of diagrammatics I just hate their diagrams um, but I think uh, cool let me start the event really quick so that way people know how to get in here I think oh oop, I called it 4.3 that's no good how did I do that alright 4.2 I will say this, the, the first diagram, the triangle, I would never have realized that was supposed to be a pendulum without the tets that goes with it. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it it feels like it's, um, I mean, it doesn't feel like it's a fucking pendulum, that's for sure. No, it looks like the three plus one. <laughs> All right, I think uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, kick us off. 4.2, Antioedipus, the molecular unconscious. What is the meaning of this distinction between two regions, one molecular and the other molar, one micropsychic or micrological, the other statistical and gregarious? Is this anything more than a metaphor lending the unconscious a distinction grounded in physics when we speak of an opposition between intra-atomic phenomena and the mass phenomena that operate through statistical accumulation, obeying the laws of aggregates? But in reality, the unconscious belongs to the realm of physics. The body without organs and its intensities are not metaphors, but matter itself. Nor is it our intention to revive the question of an individual psychology and a collective psychology, and of the priority of one or the other. This distinction, as it appears in group psychology and the analysis of the ego, remains completely stymied by Oedipus. In the unconscious, there are only populations, groups, and machines. When we posit in one case an involuntariness and un involuntaire of the social and technical machines, <clears throat> in the other case an unconscious of the desiring machines, it is a question of a necessary relationship between inextricably linked forces. Some of these are elementary forces by means of which the unconscious is produced, the others, resultants reacting on the first, statistical aggregates through which the unconscious is represented and already suffers psychic and social repression of its elementary productive forces. 
through the entire book, they've been using the terms molar and molecular. Uh, this is not a new thing uh, to this section. They're finally actually going through and explaining it significantly more. As, as we discuss the two regions, the first thing that they want to make very clear is that they're not talking about a group ego or a singular ego. Uh, they don't uh, conceive of such a thing as that. We'll be getting sort of into how, but the comment they have in here, it's not our intention to revive the question of an individual or collective psychology. They think that's a mistake in and of itself. Instead, we should be having this conversation about the groups that do exist. There's the groups at the molecular level, which exist pre-conscious, uh, which our unconscious is made of, these machines, the multiplicity of that. But there's also the multiplicity uh, uh, further out as we go to the molar, the, the statistical, the gregarious, when we say things such as crime stats or when we talk about left-handedness. Uh, these things are statistical, gregarious, large, mass representations of people that are, again, made of collections that are made of collections, made of collections all the way down. It's intended to be a discussion uh, more, uh, as we'll see, sort of about the two regimes and how they interplay and work against each other. Uh, it's my take on this paragraph. Uh, it's a fairly crisp one. If anyone has a secondary or other interpretation, please, uh, or questions, now would be the time. I'm going to happily sit here for a moment and be awkward. I'm happy to do that. You know that. So there's no way someone doesn't have a question about this. This shit's. This is one of the things I got stuck on uh, the first read through. You go back and you listen to uh, me, me embarrassing myself by asking a ton of questions. To me, I always had assumed that they were talking about the two regimes as being separate, that we're talking about the molar on one side and we're talking about on the other side, the molecular. And that's absolutely not the intention here. They're talking about uh, sort of large-scale regimes, but there's a fuzziness to it overall. Uh, JK, please. Yeah, so, um, yeah, he would, uh, would he describe, um, you know, Freud's ego and the, uh, and these uh, <clears throat> separate ego, id, and super ego as, um, as just, uh, you know, one of these parts of these machines that he sees it's, uh, you know, uh, you know, that uh, is, um, prevails, you know, uh, in the unconscious and the conscious. And so it's all, it's all machines, right? It, it is all machines. And the, the ego is a collection of them underneath it. They have uh, the line in here, in the unconscious, there are only populations, groups, and machines. When we posit in one case, an involuntariness of the social and technical machines, uh, which we do uh, sort of have that discussion. It's a question of a necessary relationship between inextricably linked forces. And that's, uh, they were talking about the intensities, they're talking about the affects, they're talking about sort of how these things collide into each other. That collection of machines produces and seems to produce the ego or the group or the society, these, these sort of large, uh, gregarious groupings of these elements that are mostly statistically put together rather than actually put together. And uh, the unconscious is ultimately always represented through them. If it's, if we're talking about uh, your ego, there's, we're, we're able to at some level say, here's kind of where JK starts and ends. We can kind of point that out. And there's like an average there of what JK does or makes. Uh, which is kind of how we do that. We do the same thing uh, at large. Racism is incredibly good at this. Uh, uh, the blacks, 
the whites, whatever it may be, this idea of these large, again, statistical aggregates, there's a general commonality, but it's not actually representing the desires or the machines within, either is the ego or the name of the person uh, all the way down. Because again, as they say, as it ends here, um, uh, some of these elementary forces by means of which the unconscious is produced, the others resultants reacting on the first statistical aggregates through which the unconscious is represented and already suffers psychic and social repression of its elementary productive forces. It's that interaction that we're talking about here. The statistical aggregates that ultimately uh, play upon and repress the uh, productive forces at the base level. I hope that helped. Sorry, I kind of rambled a little bit. I'm going to do that a lot through, uh, through much of this, especially if no one else talks. Uh, you can type in the chat if you want as well. Happy to answer questions there. But how can we speak of machines in this microphysical or micro-psychic region, there where there is desire, that is to say, not only its functioning, but formation and auto-production? A machine works according to the previous intercommunications of its structure and the positioning of its parts, but does not selt itself into place any more than it forms or reproduces itself. This is even the point around which the usual polemic between vitalism and mechanism revolves. The machine's ability to account for the workings of the organism, but its fundamental inability to account for its formations. From machines, mechanism abstracts a structural unity in terms of which it explains the functioning of the organism. Vitalism invokes an individual and specific unity of the living which every machine presupposes insofar as it is subordinate to organic continuance and insofar as it extends the latter's autonomous formations on the outside. Um, it should be noted in one way or another, the machine and desire thus remain in an extrinsic relationship, either because desire appears as an effect determined by a system of mechanical causes or because the machine is itself a system of means in terms of the aims of desire. The link between the two remains secondary and indirect, both in the new means appropriated by desire and in the derived desires produced by the machines. Is it kind of a vitalism where he uh, is uh, influenced by Bergson? Very much. Is this a... Right. Very much. I, this is, um, and uh, on, that, on that note, I have to say we're having a Bergson reading uh, coming up here uh, Thursday. Please check our events, uh, Creative Evolution, which is kind of this specifically. Uh, but please, JK, continue. Yeah. Is, is he talking about machines within this kind of vitalism, or is it, um, you know, uh, is he talking about them as, you know, equally uh, prevalent? Um, equally determining so he's is he a prioritizing vitalism or 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 prioritizing machine mechanism I, I think that's actually a great question i'd love if anyone has thoughts on because i don't necessarily have myself i haven't arrived at a an answer there the way he he he's talking here about vitalism he says uh, vitalism invokes they say and vitalism invokes an individual and specific unity of the living, which every machine presupposes insofar as it is subordinate to organic continuance, but so far as it extends the latter's autonomous formations on the outside. There's a, 
sort of uh, an analogous thing to this when we start talking about uh, you know life as a as a thing scientifically biological life. There's a general way that cells are formed. They're unable to mostly account for their own creation. We're starting to have more understandings of these things, but there is an assumption that there is in things an individual and specific unity of the living, uh, which itself uh, becomes troublesome in this way, I think, because that's the polemic he's talking about here. A machine works by previous intercommunications of its structures, but does not set itself into place any more than it forms or reproduces itself. Life does very much continue to set itself into place. So there seems to be a conflict is how I'm reading that maybe. Well, because yeah, if he's... Um, Go ahead. Yeah. If he's, uh, you know, prioritizing, um, you know, the Nietzschean and uh, view and along with uh, Spurzon's uh, vitalism, then um, the uh, kind of uh, organic... Um, you know the kind of structures, right? Um, uh, which is what a machine is—is is, is the kind of structure, right? And and very often the word has been more recently translated into apparatus, which I think yeah. is um, their their use of apparatus or machine is kind of the deal. It's machine, especially in English, has some very specific uh, connotations with it. I don't think it was necessarily intended, especially now. Um, but I think uh, apparatus has been more common recently, and I like that uh, usage because it's it's about the structure and its production and kind of pieces of it, as I understand it. You know, archetypes, you know, right? things like that, right? And that's a question whether uh, you know which one is more authentic in terms of you know th uh, understanding the life process. Jack, you were going to say something, please. I I don't. I don't think he's. I don't think Deleuze and Guadagni are trying to say one's more important than the other, or prioritizing um, vitalism over mechanism, right? I think what they're laying out here is so. Like in the first paragraph, they're trying to say, right, we're not doing metaphors. We're not trying to say that the unconscious has to be understood in terms of something other than itself, so as to bridge a gap, right? That's what we do when we use metaphors. We're trying to kind of bridge a gap. That are for exploitation of people, that are for... <laughs> Anyways, um, I, so from there, right, they're trying to say that this is a physics of the unconscious and that we're going to go right into the unconscious on its own terms. To do that, they're going to lay out the relationship of vitalism and uh, mechanism, right? And to start laying that out, they're going to start with how it's usually considered which is that vitalism and mechanism are basically antipodal, right? That the two are kind of uh, mutually exclusive, which is what this paragraph is kind of laying out is there's these parts of vitalism and there's these parts of mechanism that basically don't commingle because of the way we're thinking about them until we go into the next paragraph where they're going to use Samuel Butler to say, right, there's a whole different way to think about that, which is going to be the view I think they kind of uh, end up following is the way that the two, um, it is desiring production, right? The two work together. No, no, reading ahead, yes. So it, it's one of the things, and we ran into this, I think, yesterday in our logic sense reading. It's with, with Deleuze and Guattari is just as guilty. They'll often spend time saying why a thing doesn't work more as a way to sort of steel man or build up the thing they're critiquing. So that way you're able to understand what they're about to grow off of. So 
this is not I, I this is this is paragraph is not them saying that there is an exclusivity between machines and vitalism, but instead that it seems as though here is why there is a gulf between them, and it seems that they are uh, uh, unable to be sort of merged together in a thing, uh, into a single sort of apparatus. I think, yeah. That's uh, the next paragraph. I think will clear that up too. Yeah, they're they're basically like in an academic sense, right? They're just introducing the the typical way everything's presented, right? The, kind of one of the dominant arguments, and then they're going to offer their counter argument. But they do it they do it in one paragraph into the second paragraph. They don't set up that they're going to do that, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what makes it challenging. I think is that there's no topic sentence to tell you that's what's that's what's going to happen. Well, at least he's not doing his normal weird unreadable sarcasm that takes us four paragraphs before we realize he's just being a dick. Um, or we missed it. Or we missed it already. <laughs> That's fair. It's fair. Very possible. See you in two more paragraphs. <laughs> um, that's it. The, the core idea here is laying those things out because we are about to get into um, the, the nature of machines uh, in, a, in a very different way. Um, again, Samuel Butler. So uh, I'll wait for a uh, montage to... Finish typing, uh, if it's a question. If anyone else has a question before I move on, please, now would be the time. Uh, vitalism and mechanism, it seems, both have the problem that machines and desires stay in two different spheres. I think that is actually, that's, that's, I think that is actually the final line here. I think that's a very astute way to sort of sum this up, that there says, it's basically summing this paragraph up. That's very nice. I might uh, copy that over. Thank you very much, montage. <laughs> um... But it's, yeah, it's a Christmas star. Yeah, right? it's a Christmas star. <laughs> um, I think that's spot on that we're talking about here, them laying out this problem that seems to exist, that desire and machines don't two come together inside of one, that they are uh, things that may interact, but only secondary and indirect, uh, both in the new means appropriated by desire and in the derived desires produced by the machines that one births the other, but they're never like the same element. I think that's a really crisp way of putting it. Thank you. Uh, However, they may have a different point. A profound text by Samuel Butler, The Book of the Machines, nevertheless allows us to go beyond these points of view. It is true that this text seems at first merely to contrast the two common arguments, the one according to which the organisms are, for the moment, only more perfect machines, Whether those things which we deem most purely spiritual are anything but disturbances of equilibrium in an infinite series of levers, beginning with those levers that are too small for microscopic detection. The other, according to which machines, are never more than extensions of the organism. The lower animals keep all their limbs at home in their bodies, but many of man's are loose and lie about detached, now here and now there in various parts of the world. But there is a Butlerian manner for carrying each of these arguments to an extreme point where it can no longer be opposed to the other, a point of non-difference or dispersion. For one thing, Butler is not content to say that machines extend the organism, but asserts that they are really limbs and organs lying on the body without organs of a society, which men will appropriate according to their power and their wealth, and whose poverty deprives them as if they were mutilated organisms. For another, he is not content to say that organisms are machines, but asserts 
that they contain such an abundance of parts that they must be compared to very different parts of distinct machines, each relating to the others, engineered in combination with the others. That last sentence actually is pretty much also summing up the same thing. Um, Montage's point, I think, made very crisply that it's, they're saying before, uh, it seems that this is the case. Machines and desire are two different places. But Butler comes with the two things. Oh, well, what if we have these, these moments where we see it's living or whatever, or this organic or spiritual element, uh, but lo and behold, it's actually just the end of a long series of dominoes, and we can't even see where the dominoes began. On the opposite side of things, machines are never more than extensions of an organism. Uh, for him, the lower animals keep all their limbs at home in their bodies, but man's are loose. Our, our ability to sort of distribute our machines uh, and our parts uh, as we do, uh, as they say here, uh, they are really limbs and organs lying on the body without organs of a society. Men will appropriate according to their power and their wealth and whose poverty deprives them if they were mutilated or it's actually a really fucking good line. That is there as a quote. Or that shit. Yeah, I mean, it, it takes us right back to like little Hans, right? Like, yeah. there's a way of talking about um, like people who need machines to do things, right? Where there's kind of an artificiality between the biological and the, and the techno-biological, right? Introducing technology, but if you if you put this in Deleuze and Guattari's terms, right, if we're just talking about what's what machines are working on the BWO, right, then you lose that because the machines are right, the functionality of them puts them on a, a common ground, which is going to be what they're doing in terms of a libidinal distribution, right? What functions? As opposed to like there's the natural and then there's like the the artificially social. But I guess the main point there being like things don't exist in isolation. Mm -hmm. Just talk about like little Hans, his uh, his body and the machine as though they exist independent of one another. Um, the two and everything that composes the two are all intimately related in a series of um, of different relations we can draw upon. I don't. I don't think one precedes the other, right? Like it's just like four point one opens up with the chicken or the egg. Yeah. Those are the whole, like kind of conditions the familial, right? So in that sense, there's a point to be made. But I think with vitalism and mechanism, right? It's it's desiring, right? So every time something. Hmm. Well, well, um, I'm, I'm I'm hopefully I'm fixing hopefully a fixing bit. a little bit. Oh, the clicking's, oh, the clicking's pretty, bad. pretty bad. Is that any better? Is that at any all? better at all? But he is, uh, he is uh, doing a critique of um, the Oedipal structure, right? And so he is critiquing a structure there that maybe shouldn't be there or something, or maybe a, um, a mechanism that shouldn't be there, or that it's somehow a, um, you know, um, divergent from what is um, originary or primordial. I think you could definitely contrast mechanism with something like an Oedipal representation, right? Um, because we're talking about the molecular unconscious kind of verse, um, versus like the molar unconscious in representation. 
where you've still got you've still got this point mm-hmm. about an assembly of parts, but there's something to be said about um, using an assembly of parts like Oedipus to represent and therefore access the unconscious, which would be to um, basically what you're going to do is you're going to it's like the S1 problem, right? You're going to minimize and kind of understand everything through one perspective while not taking into account the other perspectives of each partial object. So it would be a difference of like an emergent structure through mechanism versus kind of taking a wholesale structure uh, in lieu of that and therefore taking that, that wholesale structure to speak for everything within the assemblage. Testing, testing. Uh, the next paragraph is kind of the big one on this. We're going to spend some time. This has one of my favorite uh, poetic phrases in the entire thing. So I'm excited. What is essential is this double movement whereby Butler drives both arguments beyond their very limits. He shatters the vitalist argument by calling in question the specific or personal unity of the organism and the mechanist argument even more decisively by calling in question the structural unity of the machine. It is said that machines do not reproduce themselves, or that they only... Bless you. Sorry. Bless you. Pardon me. It is said the machines do not reproduce themselves, or that they only reproduce themselves through the intermediary of man. But does anyone say that the red clover has no reproductive system because the bumblebee, and the bumblebee only, must aid and abet it before it can reproduce? No one. The bumblebee is a part of the reproductive system of the clover. Each one of ourselves has sprung from the minute animalcules whose entity was entirely distinct from our own. These creatures are part of our reproductive system. Then why not we part of that of the machines we are misled by considering any complicated machine a single thing in truth it is a city or a society each member of which was bred truly after its kind we see a machine as a whole we call it by a name and individualize it we look at our own limbs and know that the combination forms an individual which springs from a single center of reproductive action We therefore assume that there can be no reproductive action which does not arise from a single center. But this assumption is unscientific, and the bare fact that no vapor engine was ever made entirely by another or two others of its own kind is not sufficient to warrant us in saying that vapor engines have no reproductive system. The truth is that each part of every vapor engine is bred by its own special breeders whose function is to breed that part, and that only. Well, the combination of the parts into a whole forms another department of the mechanical reproductive system. Love that quote. In passing, Butler encounters the phenomenon of surplus value of code, when a part of machine captures within its own code a code fragment of another machine, and thus owes its reproduction to a part of another machine. The red clover the bumblebee, or the orchid and the male wasp that it attracts and intercepts by carrying on its flower the image and the odor of the female wasp. I love that line postcard. It's a machinic husbandry. Um, not, not far from actually what they're talking about here. The, 
the nature of this, and it's the line of the bumblebee and the flower. Does a flower not have a reproductive system because the bee is required to be part of it? Is the bee a part of the reproductive system? Of course it is. It's, these things are parts of parts of parts of parts of larger machines, smaller machines. We individualize uh, machines in general, but they do reproduce quite often. We, we do this with ourselves. We set these things up as they are. It's a phenomenal paragraph. I absolutely adore it. Yeah, well put, man. I mean, and that's really it, right? The connective synthesis is where the structure or the, the mechanism begins to form as opposed to the, the mechanism being that which forms the, uh, the relations, right? Yep. There's a, even though there's a reciprocation there, it's not as though the structure can just be taken for granted. Uh, any questions on this paragraph? Any thoughts? Anything that stands out to you? Uh, the entire section here from Butler is entirely worth reading on its own. There's a footnote with source. Uh, we have a PDF somewhere on the server. Um, thoroughly enjoyable read. Um, the idea of, uh, we can see the flower versus the machine is the thing he's playing here. And there's a very strong reality to how he's talking about this, that uh, the flower, we wouldn't say, doesn't have a reproductive system. We name them, actually. But a bee has to do one thing or another to help that, and a bee is absolutely a part. Well, then why not the man who takes the parts from one machine moves it over as a part of the reproductive system of that. And when you start thinking about how all of this is interconnected, suddenly we start playing into an understanding more of how they're trying to talk about the molecular and the molar as the two sides. Really not two sides, but more two ways of describing the same thing from varying levels of meta perspective. I think that's exactly it, right? It's it's kind of about understanding in terms of perspectives that there's a mol a molar and molecular perspective that isn't. It's not like an opinion per se. It's the kind of the actuality of what something's seeing, both in its contextuality and in its kind of um, functionality, what it's doing, right? And this is kind of the cool thing about what they're using Butler for uh, here for, because um, usually we talk about revolutionary investments, you know in a more directly like social political context. But this is kind of funny as the Butler one has that, but it's a little bit more academic. But this is exactly what he's doing, right? He's taken an exclusive disjunction between vitalism and uh, machinism, mechanism, and he's created an inclusive disjunction, or rather the conditions for one. Hold on. Uh, Bostgert writes, does intention impact the conclusions here, like keeping things to animals? Is the bee's relationship to the clover distinct from the ant that tends to fungus in its quality for food? I reproduce certain plants just by burrs sticking to me, but I wouldn't call that the same as agriculture. I would say intentionality doesn't necessarily impact it, um, especially as intentionality is usually, usually we mean that in terms of consciousness, right? Um, especially with phenomenology. This would be, I think the point would be consistent because the bee as a, a mechanism and the clover as a mechanism can be talked about in terms of the interrelationships of such mechanisms, but the way the two relate also is a mechanism. And this is kind of like the gestalt thing. So like with ants and fungi, fungi right? Uh, Fungacies, there you go. Me English while I speak. Uh, ants and fungi, 
would be the same thing, right? An ant in relation to a fungus. There's a, the ant mechanism and then there's the fungus mechanism, but there's also the way that uh, the two form a mechanism in relation to each other, which is just another way of saying, right, there's a connective synthesis. And in fact, a series of connective syntheses. My answer would be that intentionality is a thing that happens post hoc or is part of a larger scale representation of the aggregate molar. Uh, the example that you give, for example, the bee's relationship to clover is distinct from the ant that tends to fungus. Um, or you reproducing certain plants by burst sticking wouldn't call that the same as agriculture. I, I wouldn't either because agriculture has a very specific representational sort of status. But a bee no more intends to deal with flowers nor a wasp, the orchid, than you with burrs or with a horse that eats, you know, a seeded fruit and then shits it out and causes those to grow. They're all part of the reproductive organ of all of these elements, but it's not the same as intentionality. But intentionality itself is something that happens as a sort of post hoc uh, justification or uh, quasi cause sort of reality. We'll, we'll get it, we're getting into that. Don't worry. Intentionality is actually a major part of a lot of this that's coming, but I, it is a different thing. Again, uh, when we talk about these kinds of machines, let's go back to the unconscious and the way we've talked about it up to this point, which is keeps and is a solid line through. Uh, if I ask my four-year-old, oh, you kicked me, why did you kick me? And he doesn't know. And I demand an answer, he'll give me one. And he's not lying, but he's not telling the truth. It, the, the nature of oh, so that's what that was, which is the third synthesis, the, the subject that emerges, that's intentionality. There is a demand to do these things or to do this set of things that makes it agriculture. But I would ask, this would be the fun debate we would have around all of this. Um, let's say that I started a farm that was literally uh, just me and I take care of bees but I don't really spend time doing it. I just built a bunch of shit for bees to live in and I have a bunch of flowers that I take care of. Am I a bee farmer? Yes. So how, how much do you have to intend? It's going to be fun. Yeah, I, I just kind of want to land that super quick because uh, what's been in the back of my mind this whole time has been a lot of talks about agroecology and how uh, the rigidness of like monoculture crops uh, does bear some mind that that raw intentionality I was discussing earlier, but doesn't compare to a lot of these um, indigenous agroecology methods, which were just well, without intention and were much more broad. So yeah. definitely going to be listening along. I'm, I'm really kind of interested in this concept. Yeah, we'll be getting into it, uh, I think, actually pretty quick here. Um, I think very quick here, actually. Uh, but I'll, I'll move to the next paragraph unless anyone has a question or comment. Uh, it's open. Please join. He's making the analogy of a machine, natural machines, uh, you know, that reproduce and the kind of vitalism that occurs there. Um, you know, that's um, with the, uh, you know, analogy with the, the human, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, coding and machinery, which is maybe um, not, you know, uh, you know, uh, far from natural. And how far do you go before you? You know how far from that natural uh, process of machinery do you go before it? Um, you have problems. You create these uh, kind of problems that he's talking about. You know, 
Hmm. I think we yeah, I think we're about to get into a little bit of that as well. At this point of dispersion of the two arguments, it becomes immaterial. <clears throat> it becomes immaterial whether one says that machines are organs or organs machines. The two definitions are exact equivalents. Man as a vertebromechanet animal or as an aphidian parasite of machines. What is essential is not the passage to infinity itself, the infinity composed of machine parts, or the temporal infinity of animalcules, but rather in what this passage blossoms into. Once the structural unity of the machine has been undone, once the personal and specific unity of the living has been laid to rest, a direct link is perceived between the machine and desire. The machine passes to the heart of desire. The machine is desiring and desire machined. Desire is not in the subject, but the machine in desire, with the residual subject off to the side, along the machine, around the entire periphery, a parasite of machines, an accessory of vertebromechanate desire. In a word, the real difference is not between the living and the machine, vitalism and mechanism but between two states of the machine that are two states of the living as well. The machine taken in its structural unity, the living taken in its specific and even personal unity, are mass phenomena or molar aggregates. For this reason, each points to the extrinsic existence of the other. And even if they are differentiated and mutually opposed, it is merely as two paths in the same statistical direction but in the other, more profound or intrinsic direction of multiplicities, there is interpenetration, direct communication between the molecular phenomenon and the singularities of the living, that is to say, between the small machines scattered in every machine and the small formations dispersed in every organism. A domain of non-difference between the microphysical and the biological there being as many living beings in the machine as there are machines in the living. Why speak of machines in this domain when there would seem to be none, strictly speaking, no structural unity, nor any preformed mechanical interconnections? Quote, but there is the possibility of formation of such machines in indefinitely in superimposed relays in working cycles that mesh with each other, which, once assembled, will obey the laws of thermodynamics, but which, in the process of assembly, do not depend on these laws, since the chain of assembly begins in a domain where, the definition, by definition, there are, as yet, no statistical laws. At this level, functioning and formation are still confounded, as in the molecule, and, starting from this level, two diverging paths open up, one of which will lead to the more or less regular accumulations of individuals, the other to the perfectings of the individual organization whose simplest schema is the formation of a pipe. To read from this, Raymond Rier, uh, the genesis of the form of life, I believe, of Antes. Uh, taking up certain arguments of Bohr, Schrodinger, Jordan, and Lilly, Royer shows that the living is directly coupled to the individual phenomena of the atom beyond the mass effects that appear in the internal mechanical circuits of the organism as well as the external technical activities. Quote, Classical physics only concerns itself with mass phenomena, 
In contrast, microphysics naturally leads to biology. Starting from the individual phenomena of the atom, one can in fact go two directions. This is the line that they took. Statistical accumulation leads to the laws of common physics. But as the individual phenomena become complicated through systemic interactions, all the while keeping their individuality at the core of the molecule, then at the core of the macromolecule, then of the virus, then of the one-celled organism, by subordinating the mass phenomenon, one is led all the way to the organism that, no matter how large, remains, in this sense, microscopic. These themes are developed at length by Rie in Nia Finlazmi. The, the way it's described here, scientifically, is, I think, quite lovely. Uh, if we start from the atom, we can immediately talk about their statistical accumulation, how they play up, how they operate at those levels statistically, but not talking about the atom itself, not the thing itself. We're talking now about groupings of them and how, on average, they seem to behave and the rules around that. Again, statistical aggregative sort of standards. Uh, but... As these individual phenomena become complicated through systemic interactions, uh, Brownian motion comes to mind quickly, but there's more than a few of those. It's as we start actually expanding out what these molecules do when they run into each other, or when they do a little bit more. If we want to, I know, Jack, you were reading a little bit about Minecraft. Uh, Minecraft is actually a pretty good example of the complexity of systemic interactions. Uh, as the blocks get larger and larger and larger, as the groupings of them get bigger, as they start playing against each other, there is overall a, a total shift in terms of their sheer complexity of how, of it, how all of it works together. They keep their individuality at the core of the molecule, then at the core of the molecule, then at the virus, and as they make their way up, there is a continuing individuality that's always there that makes the overall individual itself, in a sense, microscopic. What was the, the hard thing for me with Minecraft is um it's just too much of like a peanuts thing for me, you know, like Charlie Brown. Everybody's a blackhead. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, Jesus Christ, Jack. I don't know why I allow you to talk to people sometimes. Oh, that's bad. That one's bad, dude. The real difference is therefore between, on the one hand, the molar machines, whether social, technical, or organic, and on the other, the desiring machines, which are of a molecular order. Desiring machines are the following. Formative machines, whose very misfirings are functional, whose functioning is indiscernible from their formation. Chronogenous machines engaged in their own assembly, montage, eh, montage, operating by non-localizable intercommunications and dispersed localizations bringing into play processes of temporalization, fragmented formation and detached parts with a surplus value of code and where the whole is itself produced alongside the parts as a part apart or, as Butler would say, in another department that fits the whole over other parts. Machines, in the strict sense, because they proceed by breaks and flows, associated waves and particles, associative flows and partial objects, inducing, always at a distance, transverse connections, inclusive disjunctions, and polyvocal conjunctions, thereby producing selections, detachments, and remainders, with a transference of individuality and a generalized schizogenesis, 
whose elements are Skiz's flows. I mean, that's basically the definition of a desiring machine, our excellence. Well, I, I like it too, because it's true to, um, like in logic, a sense to lose rights. Um, the account, something to the effect of the account of languages we're told has to be given all at once. I, I think he's going to point the assessor or somebody, but that point about the all at once, I mean, I, I really like the way they go through the unconscious in that because that's kind of what they're going through, right? That's why you can't really do the chicken or the egg because you get the chicken and the egg all at once, right? Yes, I can take a chicken to uh, a different milu and produce an egg and an egg uh, I can create a chicken out of, but that's kind of the point, right? Is that you're not going to be able to really, um, you can't really have them in, in an exclusivity. Especially because, as like you said, as they're saying here, right, this point about temporalization a lot, you know, as desire is producing things, you're getting temporality, you're getting all these things that come with it, as opposed to things being kind of out there in the ether. I will continue to the next. It's a fairly crisp paragraph. Um, uh, again, they're very much, uh, as they said from the beginning, this is not a, desiring machines aren't something they're throwing out there as a allegory or, oh, this is kind of how this works and sort of poetic. It's like, no, this, this is the real base level shit. This is material things that are at the bottom. The lines here I really also love is the literal demand that we're talking about uh, with desiring machines is that it's not about them functioning and then, oh, it's nice flows. It's no desiring machines are formative machines whose very misfirings are functional, which is a fantastic, again, uh, to go back to his overall sort of uh, the force that desire plays and how it moves through things. It's a great visual to make sure we're not talking about, oh, desire, uh, desire gets mistaken. I believe there's lines in here that say very much the opposite, that desire can't be fooled. Montage acts, asks, uh, when they talk about partial objects, how is their use of the word differed? How could one distinctly use it uh, versus Melanie Klein? I think they're using it in a very Kleinian sense. We're talking about partial objects as the thing that is just uh, on the other side of possible representation. If I an eye is not a partial object, but that sort of space between the way it looks at things sort of is. A breast is not a partial object. That's a very much a whole object. But the edge of the nipple is, even as I describe it, I'm not really describing it. The partial objects are uh, in themselves the thing before. So I, I think it's very Kleinian. I don't think it's far off from that. Anyone else have a different read? Oh well, yeah, yeah, it's definitely Klein, right? Um... I think they go over how they're differing in chapter two. I want to say they kind of make the point that, um, I mean, one of the things they're afraid of is that with Klein, she's kind of going to, she's going to make this great break with, um, like with the, she's going to make this really original thing with the partial objects in that, right? And then it's going to get into an Oedipal problem, which is where they go into like daddy train, mommy train, and dick train, which is my favorite quote from this book, probably. Um, is that Kleinian case study. But I think that's one of the ways they're differentiating from Klein is that um, on one level, they're very careful not to to reinstantiate Oedipus here. And then on the other level, um, it's the contextuality of their thought, right? So like 
Klein doesn't have schizoanalysis. Klein doesn't have the three syntheses. But they are reading Klein in that way, right? So as to be able to do this, um, so as to be able to create this differentiation. Kind of like what they say about Freud and the id, right? What a mistake to have ever said the id. Mm -hmm. Subsequently, rather, we should say, on the other hand, when the machines become unified at the structural level of techniques and institutions that give them an existence as visible as a plate of steel, when the living, too, become structured by the statistical unities of their persons and their species, varieties, and locales, when a machine appears as a single object and a living organism appears as a single object, when the connections become global and specific, the disjunctions exclusive and the conjunctions bi-univocal, then desire does not need to project itself into these forms that have become opaque. These forms are immediately molar manifestations, statistical determinations of desire and of its own machines. They are the same machines, there is no difference in nature, here as organic, technical, or social machines apprehended in their mass phenomenon to which they become subordinated. There, as desiring machines, apprehended in their sub-microscopic singularities that subordinate the mass phenomena. That is why, from the start, we have rejected the idea that desiring machines belong to the domain of dreams, or the imaginary, and that they stand in for other machines. There is only desire and environments, fields, forms of herd instinct. Stated differently, the molecular desiring machines are in themselves the investment of the large molar machines or the configurations that the desiring machines form according to the laws of large numbers. In either or both senses of subordination, in one sense and the other of subordination. Desiring machines in one sense but organic, technical, and social machines in the other. These are the same machines under determinate conditions. By determinate conditions, we mean those statistical forms into which the machines enter as so many stable forms, unifying, structuring, and proceeding by means of large, heavy aggregates. The selective pressures that group the parts, retain some of them and exclude others, organizing the crowds. These are therefore the same machines, not at all the same regime, same relationship or magnitude, or the same uses of syntheses. It is only at the sub product and production merge. All molar functionalism is false, since the organic or social machines are not formed in the same way they function, and the technical machines are not assembled in the same way they are used, but imply precisely the specific conditions that separate their own production from their distinct product. Only what is not produced in the same way it functions has a meaning, and also a purpose, an intention. The desiring machines, on the contrary, represent nothing, signify nothing, mean nothing, and are exactly what one makes of them, what is made with them, and what they make in themselves. Like, seriously, basically just taking on a whole bunch of baggage right there. It's a hell of a thing, though. Love that. Love it. Um, 
I don't even know where I want to start. Like every single sentence in here I could spend time on. Um, uh, desire doesn't get fooled. Desire, desiring machines operate at every level. Their form is what matters. The way that they play out is what we call them, but uh, they are invested at large by the small desiring, the little tiny molecular desiring machines. They are invested of the large uh, in subordination to them. Desiring machines in one sense, but organic, technical, and social machines in the other. Facebook, Twitter, this server, having a conversation, listening to me, sitting in your podcast, driving to work, going to work, how work operates. All of these things are your desiring machines operating, and they are operating as they are. Uh, not incorrectly, necessarily. They just are doing what they're doing. They're desiring machines in one sense, all of those things. Uh, but they are organic machines. Uh, your body uh, taking a shit, eating food. Technical machines, riding a bike, building, building a computer. Uh, I'm building a terrarium for my frogs right now. Uh, there's a lot of parts of that. Or social machines, uh, which is this server dealing with it, hearing me being nervous about sitting here. All of those little machines are playing out. They're all desiring machines in one sense, but organic, technical, and social machines in the other. They're the same machines, but under determinate conditions. The determinate conditions are what the machines enter into, which is the stable, unifying, structuring, preceding forms, proceeding by means of these large, heavy aggregates, the selective pressures that group the parts, retain some of them and exclude others, organizing the crowds. I could literally just reread this like a dozen times. It's such a fucking good paragraph. A lot more than a function, functionalism is false. You're very quiet. All molar functionalism is false. In that, um, in this paragraph, yeah. what does it mean by, what does it mean by being false? Um. So, I I read it as like, since the point about the kind of the disjunctive synthesis, right? What things are going to do their functionality? I think what they're getting. There is that, um, especially if we're going to look at um, the exclusive disjunction on that in terms of the molar, the molar isn't what's going to give everything their functionality, right? Because at the molecular level, the way things are being produced, like with the bee, right? The way that um, a bee starts dancing to perform the mating ritual on that, those different pieces and their functionalism, that's at the, kind of that molecular level, right? And that's not molarly determined. But there's a point here about the, the, the kind of making with the subordination and determinate conditions, right? That the molar is still effective in this process, but that what things do is not to be confused with what things are subordinated by. Right now you're sitting at your computer and we're having a conversation. Uh, it would actually be, I think it's fairly analogous to say, your screen, the program you're running, all this, they actually don't have uh, the same functionality. They, they're abstracted forms of bits, which are abstracted forms of electrons passing and very specific amounts of code that are setting those things up back and forth. The, the function of all of the computer or phone or whatever the fuck you're using 
can be easily tied down to and, and predicated by, ultimately made by how those bits, the ones and zeros, the electrons are moving through the silicone of whatever the fuck you're using. There's no option there. Everything is that at its base level. But we talk about the function of software. We talk about how the software does things. Software doesn't do shit. Software is an organizational method for the electrons that are moving through it. I think we're talking very similar to that, that there is no large-scale functionalism, even though we assign it to that in terms of this group does that, and here's why, or here's what this this machine does, or whatever. It's like, no, the at the base level, there's no molar functionalism because they're not, organic or social machines are not formed in the same way they function. Technical machines are not assembled in the same way they are used, but they imply precisely the specific conditions that separate their own production from their distinct product. They're conditional productive moments that build these things out. Uh, but they aren't themselves uh, uh, functional or productive without being tied into ultimately the desiring machines, how they move. So the last line here, only what is not produced in the same way it functions has meaning and also a purpose and intention. Only what is not produced in the same way it functions has a meaning. The desiring machines, on the contrary, represent nothing, signify nothing. They themselves don't have a sense, I guess, if we want to go to lot, they don't have a, a meaning behind them. We produce those out of these molar sort of aggregates of things. We combine them, we put them together, we exclude some, we add others. But they're still ultimately themselves not functional. The desire machines are the functional. They are the fuel, the electrons pushing through it. Probably the closest I can come to like a, it might even be wrong, but I kind of like that allegory. The distinction between the molecular and the molar thing, you know, this molar, you know, I think it's, uh, there's, a, there's, they don't, they don't always jive, right? They don't always uh, correlate with one another. Again, we're moving into what schizoanalysis is. Now, schizoanalysis, we're going to be uh, delving into in the chapters called, like, they're just about schizoanalysis. But we're building up towards that with all of the stuff that we've talked about so far. And underlying it, schizoanalysis is a, a methodological lens to sort of take on the things that are happening and to, to interpret and look at the world. It's a lens that allows us a different view that, uh, as they'll get into, uh, is a is a more i don't want to say correct view but uh accurate or uh less prone to being blinded by representation uh, and a lot of their other sort of critiques that they have of a lot of this specifically here they're taking on a lot of things within psychoanalysis like this paragraph is basically if you were to go through this is them point by point by point by point, kind of taking down what you might call some of the pillars of psycho classic psychoanalytic thinking, even Lacanian, uh, which was at the time fairly revolutionary, but they kind of jumped forward. Um, this idea that um, the ego makes things and is itself productive and functional might be one of the things that they're taking on here, that there is a, a superego that is functional and productive and it's like uh sort of no no we need to go deeper and it's not so much that there's symbols flying around but actually no the down below at the base layer it's desire 
and these desiring machines, these, these elements, they don't have meaning themselves. They're meaningless at the base level. They produce. When we add meaning, what we've actually done is we've created an aggregate of those desiring machines, but the desiring machines are still the only part that is actually functional. It's a really interesting critique, and I, I very much like it. Um, a lot of it sort of rings true to me, again, on a sort of instinctual level. The way that they talk about the laws of large numbers and how we should be thinking about those or how we, we make sense of the large aggregates of things, I'm a fan. They're thinking towards that. Moller, when he's talking about Moller, is he, is he referring to the, uh, the socius? Yeah, the socius would be Moller, yes. Yeah, but kind of anything, um, it's not the direct line, but the thing that helped me early on is someone said to me that kind of molecular, you might want to say, is almost uh, pre-subject, and molar is kind of post-subject. It's not a direct line, but it's kind of an easy way to sort of uh, start wrapping your head around some of these things. Yeah, I think so. Um, I guess I'd say... I mean, I almost think of it this way, right? The BWO is kind of where you, you can access the mole and the molecular. So as to think about it in terms of the BWO as the limit of the socius, right? And I think when you're, when you're moving toward the socius, you're moving toward the molar. And you start to see things like global persons. You start to see things like, uh, like mass phenomena, aggregates, right? It's kind of the Keynesian point where, you know, we're talking like, like when we're dealing with things as they're they're happening, right? There's a way of just kind of taking them in aggregate, or just kind of a, as they they happen to kind of end up, right? So like with the the B example on that, there's a we can talk about the molarity there of like bees doing this, right? Bees um, pollinate the specific flower, and that you know we can talk about whether or not that's true. But we can also think about in terms of that as a product, as opposed to just a wholesale universal, that this is actually a product. So then what it, then the question becomes, what is the process of production so as to arrive at such a molarity, which would give you the, uh, the molecular, right? What are the, you know, how is the connective synthesis working at the molecular level where something like the pollination is actually taking place? so as to be able to happen in the aggregate like that. I suppose I should kind of caveat that, though, is always to understand that the, the molar and molecular are reciprocal, though. One, What happens in one affects the other, and the other affects the first, right? So it's never to take them as, a, like, purely antipodal, where they, they're exclusive. Um, the other sentence here that I really attach to while Mont Montage is, is writing, um, Talking about the molar forms, uh, these forms are immediately molar manifestations, these larger formations. Uh, statistical determinations of desire and its own machines. This phrasing is also itself interesting because when we talk about the social or technical machines or the large-scale molar manifestations of elements and representations, they then also have their own apparatus, the way that they form. And this is where we start breaking down, I think, some of the more traditional 
psychoanalytic ways or over analysis ways, or even somehow some people have taken Deleuze and Guattari to be perfectly frank. Um, but the idea that uh, the, the social elements produce their own desire or um, that desire comes from them and then infects us or that desire and libidinal energy flows from all directions. It's very much uh, desire flows from those base desiring machines up through and as we get to these large, gigantic things that we've made individualized or we've named or whatever it may be, they have their own machines, but they are statistical determinations of desire and its own machines, not the desire uh, or even necessarily at its base, the desire machines of the statistical aggregate. Uh, it is the aggregate. They're the same machines. There's no difference in nature here as organic, technical, or social. I adore that phrasing as well. It's one of the things when I have conversations with people about social media, I like to bring up uh, a good amount of this because it's there's a lot of mistakes, uh, uh, D&G, I believe, would say, for saying that Facebook bamboozles us or gives us exactly what we want or some stupid shit like that. Um, it kind of treats it as a separate entity. Uh, Montage says, I would be interested in some more information on their take on the imaginary and Lacan in this passage because Brooks mentioned it plainly. It seems to stand in direct connection to their critique of representation, but this takes too far away from the text. Um, I, I will say, um, this is, that's a tough one for me to try to make simple. I will say they don't have the imaginary. In the, virtual doesn't mean imaginary. They use the term virtual and actual uh, very often. Imaginary is not the same as phantasm. It's not the same as fantasy or delirium. Uh, Deleuze's and Guattari's take on all of this kind of throws most of Lacan's uh, triad of how reality works way out the fucking window. There's no real... Um, the imaginary doesn't exist in the same format or setup. Uh, there is no master signifier, a whole bunch of stuff like that. So, yeah, it's... a. Uh, I mean, you can only imagine Lacan sitting there reading this. Like, his, his, one of his star pupils, who was always an angry little guy in his classes. And there he's reading this, and he's got to be like, God damn it. <laughs> I, they kind of both have the anger in common, right? <laughs> yeah, they're, I mean, yes, very much. Yeah, the irony of the relationship. But yeah, I think that, I think you're definitely onto it, right? Like, as I understand it for Lacan, the imaginary is kind of a way of dealing with the the barred real, right? And then you have like the tension between the imaginary and the foreclosure of the symbolic and that, um, which goes like deeper than we need for this conversation. But here, right, it's if desire is not desire isn't the barred reality, desire is the production of the real, right? So by making that move by saying this is the the production of the real as opposed to saying these are this is the imaginary in the way that things are dealt with so as to keep something desiring if instead we say desire is the production of the real then something like that lacanian move to put this in the imaginary to read klein in that way for instance it's not it's no longer tenable right because now you're you're taking the process of production and now you're not even talking about the product right you're talking about how to represent the product so <laughs> Now you're in a really big um, um, kind of uh, opposition to what they're saying there. Glenn, we're going to be talking about how the desiring machines themselves uh, function now. 
Um, this is the, again, to go back, uh, literally the whole book teaching us about how desire functions in all of this. And it's a big deal that we're able to get to that point, which is great. Um, but <laughs> we're about to go a, a little deeper and, and really specifically juxtapose it again. Um, I, a lot of this is a direct critique of how desire is produced by an object, uh, which is, uh, there's a few elements uh, there from uh, other psychoanalytic theories that they are very much taking on here. So uh, this is a little guadery in how he talks about it, just so you're aware. I'll do my best to make my way through. Desiring machines work according to regimes of syntheses that have no equivalent in the large aggregates. Jacques Minaud has defined the originality of these syntheses from the standpoint of a molecular biology or of a microscopic cybernetics, without regard to the traditional opposition between mechanism and vitalism. Here, the fundamental traits of synthesis are the indifferent nature of the chemical signals, the indifference to the substrate, and the indirect character of the interactions. Such formulas as these are negative only in appearance and in relation to the laws of aggregates, but must be understood positively in terms of force, puissance. Quote, between the substrate of an allosteric, allosteric enzyme and the ligands prompting or inhibiting its activity, there exists no chemically necessary relationship or stru of structure or of reactivity. An allosteric protein should be seen as a specialized product of molecular engineering enabling an interaction, positive or negative, to come about between compounds without chemical affinity, and thereby eventually subordinating any reaction to the intervention of compounds that are chemically foreign and indifferent to this reaction. The way in which allosteric interactions work hence permits a complete freedom in the choice of controls, and these controls, having no chemical requirements to answer to, will be the more responsive to physiological requirements and will accordingly be selected for the extent to which they confer heightened coherence and efficiency upon the cell or organism. In a word, the very gratuitousness of these systems giving molecular evolution a practically limitless field for exploration and experiment enabled it to elaborate the huge network of cybernetic interconnections. To read the footnote, Jacques Minaud, Chance and Necessity. With the globular protein we already have at the molecular level, a veritable machine, a machine in its functional properties, but not, we now see, in its fundamental structure, where nothing but the play of blind combinations can be discerned. Randomness caught on the wing, preserved, reproduced by the machinery of invariance, and thus converted into order, rule, necessity. Half of that is almost like illegible scientific talk that I can't do. Anyone want to take a crack at it, please? I guess just to kick it off, I'm looking at the top of the sentence and I write, desiring machines work according to regimes of syntheses that have no equivalent in the large aggregates. Jacques Minot has defined the originality of these syntheses from the standpoint of molecular biology or a microscopic cybernetics without regard to the traditional opposition between mechanism and vitalism. So what they're, you know, they kind of boil that down, right? So first they're saying that, right, the molecular works in terms of the syntheses, the three syntheses, right, from uh, chapter one. 
and then they're going to go further, right? And th this is kind of what this this chapter is doing. This section particularly is doing. It's explaining a lot of chapter one, um, oddly enough, at the end. So in order to make these three syntheses work, right? There's also a contingency, which is to have the vitalistic and the um, the mechanistic in the manner they've discussed following Butler, as opposed to the traditional opposition between the two. So basically what they're doing here is they're kind of giving you the way that they've been able to build out the three syntheses in chapter one, kind of the material you need to understand that at the end. He's <laughs> also introducing an element of um, randomness and chance into this um... You know, nece uh, necessary process of uh, of um, you know um, synthesis, right? I th I think you can definitely read chance into it, right? Like with um with the Let's binary getting, law of great suppose. Yeah, there we go. Cool. With the uh, with the binary law of braids and flows, right? I could definitely see how like that is. I think that's definitely chance, right? Because the way relationships are working there is not to say the relationship is, is it's like the bee thing we were just talking about, right? So as to take the bees and and the the uh, flower and aggregate, so as to read backwards from that, but to take it through uh, from the point that the process of production, the way connections are happening, the BWO is going to distribute um, the functionality in relation to the, the memory in that, I think all of that does have this element of chance that you're talking about where it's not, um, it's not to be taken in terms of probability any more than it is like a determinism. In fact, I think they even, they point out that one of the weaknesses of psychoanalysis is that basically what they say is if you put psychoanalysis in a corner, they'll fall back on biodeterminism, right? <laughs> So there's definitely a mistake to lose in Guadalupe want to avoid. So it seems to be the, um, the uh, kind of a negation of the uh, deterministic element of, uh, of the machinic, uh, right, of the machine, and um, the more emphasis on maybe the vitalistic, um, you know, uh, force that is at play here, which is where the randomness and chance comes in. Yeah, I think it's the way they relate to each other, because if if you can't work back from the structure or work forward from the structure any more than you can the vitalistic, but you have to take the two as they come all together at once so that relationships are forming as much as they are formed, then I, I, I think you, you have no choice but to affirm chance there, because there's nothing like, there's nothing sitting behind it so as to provide the answer before the problem. You have simply the problem and its productivity to draw on some of logic's sense there. I'm I'm personally hesitant to say randomness is part of this. I think they've they've used that phrasing quite a bit. But I think the the big thing when we're talking about anything molar or collective here is not so much that some of it is random, it's that we're talking about like the laws of large numbers, uh everything exists in that sense. Uh, Americans have an X IQ. You can say that. There's the law of large numbers. They're a X height. They're primarily women. <laughs> we can say these things, but the actual statistical reality is that is the average. 
but any of the single elements uh, themselves are hyper differentiated. And the further we go down into any specific bit, the more differentiated they are. And this is where like the desiring machines by their breaking as a function, again, it's not just pure production off they go, it's breaking also produces. And as such, these breaks, these flows that are always going, billions of them, so many fucking happening all the time. It's not so much a randomness to it. I Randomness to me plays in a really odd space. Um, and I know it's instead, it, we tend to say that as sort of opposition of being deterministic, but I don't, I think there's a, there's a third way. I fucking hate saying that now so much. Um, but I think there's like a third way to talk about this where it's, it's a combination of the two. It can be both deterministic as well as have these elements of uh, unknowability to them uh, because it's, it's so hyper complex. Um, Brownian motion is actually a fantastic example of this. Uh, Brownian motion is the nature of a gas within a, a closed container. If you measure the particles overall, there's actually no way to reliably predict where the particles will be going. It's incredibly complicated. The three-body problem uh, is a fantastic example of this. We can create mathematical theories for one body orbiting another in space, and we can figure out what would happen. The moment we add a third one, it's almost impossible for us to actually, let alone write and make a predictive assessment of what that shape of that orbit would be. But we don't have the computer power and we may never be able to actually, you know, actually figure that out. So it's not so much randomness, but that we're talking about billions of minute small differences that are part of that larger aggregate that we're combining into a singular unit in order to create a representation. So something is we could say knowable or describable or that I'm able to refer to it versus if I just point over there and go that, which doesn't work, I have to go, oh, the computer, Brooks, Ben, Jack, that that gives me a chance to say that thing. Um, but at any point, it's not that Ben's random, it's that I have no idea what makes him up. It's a, it's too different. There's too much too much differences underneath. Did did he mention Jack Monod in this paragraph? That is Jack Monod, yes. Yeah. So let me just review who Jack Monod is. He was a biologist and he came up with this uh, model of evolution, which was kind of structuralist. And the the major claim for to fame for him was this differentiation of teleology and what he called teleonomic. And so teleonomic is when you know, you're going toward a certain point, but you don't know what that point is until you get there. Rather, as teleology, you know where you're going before you get there. And the way that he kind of constructed his uh, evolutionary model was that you had a layer of determinism and then a layer of randomness, a layer of determinism and a layer of randomness, so that, you know, as you progressed, the way that it focused down on a single endpoint was by uh, producing random uh, differences and then selecting uh, some of them determinately, and then mm. at the next stage, randomizing again and then selecting again and so forth until you get to a, a single outcome. And I should say, Ben, who is being quiet, is the one who, like, he, he brought up my point and said it, I think cleaner than I did, uh, simpler. 
Deleuze would insist upon alterity instead of randomness. Because, uh, it, again, randomness, there's, it's, not, it's not randomness. It's chaos, but chaos isn't randomness either under how I've read what he and Guattari write about chaos even. Because it's a different mentality than how I think it's colloquially used quite often. Did you have anything you wanted to add, Ben? He's uh, on, meditating on a cone, right? Yeah, chilling. <laughs> no, but there's a point about Melanie Klein on page two ninety five. So, yeah, we got Montage, a lot. You'll have your uh, you'll have your day. We've got a lot to discuss, uh, but I'm going to move to the next uh, paragraph. Uh, thank you, Kent, for that Amanad. It's uh, super useful. And Ben, don't ever get up and disturb a cat. Perfectly, perfectly valid reason not to get up. How, starting from this domain of chance or real inorganization, large configurations are organized that necessarily reproduce a structure under the action of DNA and its segments, the genes performing veritable lottery drawings, creating switching points as lines of selection or evolution. This, indeed, is what all the stages of the passage from the molecular to the molar demonstrate, such as the passage appears in the, more organic, in the organic machines, but no less so in the social machines with other laws and figures. In this sense, it was possible to insist on a common characteristic of human cultures and of living species, as Markov chains, aleatory phenomenon that are partially dependent. In the genetic codes, as in the social codes, what is termed a signifying chain is more a jargon than a language composed of non-signifying elements that have a meaning or an effect of signification only in the large aggregates that they constitute through a linked drawing of elements, a partial dependence, and a superposition of relays. It is not, if it is not a matter of biologizing human history, nor of anthropologizing natural history, it is a matter of showing the common participation of the social machines and the organic machines in the desiring machines. At man's most basic stratum, the id, schizophrenic cell, the schizomolecules, their chains, their jargons. There is a whole biology of schizophrenia. Molecular biology is itself schizophrenic, as is microphysics. But inversely, schizophrenia, the theory of schizophrenia, is biological, biocultural, inasmuch as it examines the machinic connections of a molecular order, their distribution into maps of intensity on the giant molecule of the body without organs, and the statistical accumulations that form and select the large aggregate. I mean, this is one of the reasons I prefer chance to randomness, just like it opens up there, right? How starting from this domain of chance or of real inorganization, large configurations are organized that necessarily reproduce a structure under the action of DNA and its segments, the genes, performing veritable lottery drawings, creating switching points as the lines of selection or evolution. This indeed is what all the stages of passage from the molecular to the molar demonstrate, such as this passage appears in the organic machines, but no less so in the social machines with other laws and other figures. That's way too long for a topic sentence, but nonetheless, um, I like that point, though, that, you know, when the connective synthesis is happening in that, it's a bricolor process. So it's not like the things there already is given, that when we find a B, we always find these parts of a B, and like that is because the B precedes what is actually there, right? That the idea of the B or the form of the B 
necessitates that a bee must exist hmm. as such. You know, to kind of compare it with like a, a more platonic reading. Um, instead, I think what they're getting at there is right, like the way partial objects are there, kind of present in the world, and the way that they're interacting with each other, so as to be formed through their relationships, through their functionalities, and through the intensities that that enable, um, is going to be what's at hand, as opposed to like, and this is why I say it's not like, you know, this is why I contrast with determinism, that like, um, you know, the, the a kind of beingness would proceed any more than a kind of um, a given structure that is not produced, right? That there's just kind of a structure out there that um, maybe it's productive, but at the same time, we can't really account for where it comes from, right? It's kind of like, this is part of their critique of structuralism in like a more general sense to expand on an earlier point. Yeah, it's a... It's a it's important too because you know as we're moving away from the biodeterminism, you know what we're leaving behind, right? What are we leaving behind, Jack? Mini chlorines. Yep, I was waiting for it. Thank you. Anytime, buddy. Thank you. I'm just going to ban you from the server now. <laughs> uh, technically, uh, they would the desiring machines in the Star Wars universe would be the wills, but I don't expect <laughs> someone who doesn't really know Star Wars to know that. That's fine. The wills are tiny Jedi that live inside of the midichlorians. Oh yeah, but I'm a Sith. How else they, do you they live inside the of the wills? The wills live inside of everyone at the hypermolecular level. <laughs> well played, sir. It's real. It's a thing. It's a fucking real thing. Um, uh, yeah, uh, off off of Star Wars. Uh, anyone have questions? God damn it! Anyone have questions on this as a thing? Uh, happy to go into any part of this. Uh, we'll probably do. Um, one more paragraph, I think we'll finish off uh, today and then we'll uh, take a break and go to next week where we'll sort of continue to have this discussion at large about um, uh, the molar and the molecular because it's important. Um, because it, it, as we're talking about it, again, the, the way these things are done, how they represent what they work as, how they interplay is core to schizoanalysis. Understanding the difference between what is actually molecular uh, machines, molecular items, the molecular elements within us, the way desire is produced versus the molar. And the molar can be within you. It's not just uh, as simple as uh, it's me versus society. I'm molecular and society's molar. There's a shit ton of more crossover and, and lines that go across everything. So there's a lot to be done um, with that. So uh, we'll be spending next week on that, uh, but I'm gonna finish off the next paragraph and because I like it and it's short, and it's a fun one, so we'll do that. Zondi set out on this molecular path, discovering a genie unconscious that he contrasted with a genie unconscious. Is that what it is, or is it this fucking PDF? No, it's uh, it's Genic. Genic. Genic, whichever Genic. you prefer. God damn it. The genie from Aladdin. Uh, Zondi set out on this molecular path, discovering a genic unconscious that he contrasted with the Freudian individual unconscious, as well as with Jung's collective unconscious. He often calls this genic or genealogical unconscious familial, and Zondi himself went on to study schizophrenia using familial aggregates as his units of measure. But the genic unconscious is familial only to a very small degree, much less so than Freud's unconscious, since the diagnosis is carried out by comparing desire 
to the photographs of hermaphrodites, assassins, etc., instead of reducing it, as usual, to the images of daddy-mommy. Finally, some relation to the outside. A whole alphabet, an entire axiomatic done with photos of mad people. This has to be tried, testing, quote, the need for paternal feeling against a series of portraits of assassins. It is no use saying this remains within the bounds of Oedipus. The truth is that it throws them open in a remarkable way. The hereditary genes of drives therefore play the role of a simple stimuli that enter into variable combinations following vectors that survey an entire social historical field, an analysis of destiny. I'll read the next sentence of the next paragraph. In point of fact, the truly molecular unconscious cannot confine itself to genes as its units of reproduction. These units are still expressive and lead to molar formations. Or we'll leave it out next week, but for now. Thank you for that, because it's just like the problem. No, it, it, caps it. It's right perfect. it caps it perfectly. Yeah. I agree. Thank you. I adore this this one. This is good shit right here, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the line here that I really adore is finally some relation to the outside. And the relation to the outside is hermaphrodites and assassins, which I kind of, I just, I really like the phrasing around it. But that's, that it's, and I, I, you can tell it's, it feels like there's almost humor coming through it as he's like, finally, like, Jesus Christ, you've been doing this daddy mommy thing forever. Can we finally get to the hermaphrodites and assassins and all the other shit? Because it, it changes things. The line here that ends it, the hereditary genes of drives therefore play the role of simple stimuli that enter into variable combinations following vectors that survey an entire social historical field. An analysis of destiny. Destiny is not the same as fate. Not the same as all of it. These, there's all these things that are different, but it's a interesting phrasing he's got around all of this that instead allows us to have discussions about how Again, um, our social historical field forms us and how the things we relate to form us. It's a wonderful paragraph. I really like the phrasing, but I leave it open. Please, anyone, comments, questions? Jack, I'm sure you got a thing. I'm going to actually look up because I want to do this now. The Lipot Zondi, The Experimental Diagnosis of Drives is the book, uh, the phrasing uh, to read the footnote from the Paris page. Zondi's work was the first to establish a fundamental relationship between psychoanalysis and genetics. See also the recent attempt by Andrew Green in terms of the advances made in molecular bi bi uh, biology, uh, the repetition of the death instinct, uh, uh, the repetition of instinct de mort, or whatever. I anglicize everything. I don't care anymore. Someday I'm actually going to start pronouncing this correctly, and I'm still going to make fun of myself. Um, but a wonderful, interesting little book. We did a sort of a short side read, I think, uh, first time through. Uh, when we discuss this sort of talking about how he played these things together, it's it's a really fascinating little thing. But it's, again, playing into this idea of uh, assassins and hermaphrodites not as random things, but instead, uh, what are the symbols that you grew up with, that your family showed you, that you were exposed to culturally, these elements that we all kind of have to deal with in one way or another that aren't necessarily only mommy and me. They may be influence through mommy and me in our society but you know a child is exposed to millions of things so how do you uh, enable that how do you allow this sort of uh, uh, genic uh, 
psych- psychology to exist. It's a great line that they have in there. I really like that. Paragraph. Please, co- questions, comments, uh, and then uh, we will close up. Yeah, to play off your point there, I mean, that's exactly it, right? Like, at an ontological level, it's kind of the chicken or the egg thing again. But in this sense, why not the chicken or the egg in the same way of why not mommy or daddy? But in a sense, it's because there's all this other stuff going on, right? Assassins and hermaphrodites that don't get spoken for in the way of mommy and daddy, right? But in a, in a, to say it differently, it's a, if we're talking about a process-oriented ontology, right? Mm-hmm. Then something like mommy and daddy has to be produced just as much as an assassin or hermaphrodite. And in that sense, you know, what they're, I think they're really driving at here is to get to the point of like, what these genes do is they're stimuli of production, right? It's the, it's machines, come, well, it's partial objects coming together through re, libidinal relationships, right? Mm-hmm. So as to initiate processes of production in the same way that you know, does a chicken determine an egg any more than an egg determines a chicken? Or is it that in either case you have a process of production so as to arrive at a chicken as much as an egg? Which is why, I can, like I said earlier, I could take a chicken to the other side of the country and make an egg just like I could do the same with an egg to a chicken. Um, the phrasing around uh, that final bit there, the, the, the line that he's got about the analysis of destiny uh, is actually a callback uh, to Zondi, uh, Lipot Zande, uh, who specifically wrote uh, The Psychology of Destiny. Um, and it's an analysis of uh, not, not destiny, maybe in the profound sense that you might see in anime, for example, but instead uh, how our destiny that we experience or feel drawn down to or the rails we will exist on, the destiny that I exist or feel like I have at birth, how does that get created? What is genealogical in that? How is uh, destiny sort of created for me? The book's great for that. Um, and so that's his, his reference here is kind of turning back on it, assuming this is Guattari. Um, it's no use saying this remains within the bounds of Oedipus, blah, blah, blah. The hereditary genes of drives therefore play the role of simple stimuli. And it's a, the last line. It's an analysis of destiny, which is... It, he wrote Zondi's book, Introduction to the Psychology of Destiny, is the title. So, and it's great. Thing for you to read. Uh, if you find a, an English version, I have a shitty translated one from Portuguese. is the only one I've ever been able to find. Um, so, pardon me for that. Well, I like it because, to your point, like, this is kind of their point about what they're doing with DNA in the preceding chapter, right? You know, because they're, they're very clear that they're not doing like a bio or genome determinism, right? They're doing a processorial uh, ontology, right, where things are being produced as opposed to like, um, even though there are conditions, it's not like an underlying essence uh, predicates what is actually out there. Things have to be produced in the, you know, in, for them to be there, right? These genes have to kind of or rather the stimuli of production have to happen so as to produce the real, which is going to be the production of the real. But to compare that with the point about like uh, the signifying chains in that too, right? I mean, I, I really like how they're expanding their argument here to go not only in terms of production at a, like a, a stimulus level or like a catalyst level, 
but also to talk about, you know, there is still this point about um, these, the, the partial objects and libidinal flows have this kind of communicative um, process to it, right? They have these signifying chains, but it's not the signifying chains we're used to in something like Lacan, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking more about like that uh, Yishmelvian. Yomslevian. Thank you. Uh, you know, <laughs> that guy, the glossmatic chain, um, whereas any, any question of signification is to move into more of the molar, right? Or something like the Isasir or Lacan would start to become relevant. Uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and push us off uh, for the day. We will be back next week. We will continue from, we'll probably read a little bit of the previous paragraph and move our way in and then make our way hopefully through. Will we be able to get through it next week? Maybe. I'm going to say a big maybe before we get to psychoanalysis and capitalism, which is going to take us uh, a month or two <laughs> entirely. Uh, it, it will. Hopefully the rest of the year. Yeah, the rest of the year is for sure taken up by the next chapter. So see what we can get through the next this next week, and then um, we'll make our way through. Uh, again, please make your way, if you can, to our uh, Discord server and our uh, week-ending uh, server summit, where we're going to be explaining what's happening, talking through some stuff, and uh, taking suggestions uh, and proposals from our lovely members, uh, all of you. So thank you so much. Uh, Thank you.